Kevin. Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Rundown. Let's, Let's go. go. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Runtime Rundown, the show where we read the web dev news so that you don't have to. I am Joe. I'm a front end developer. Uh, that is Evan over there. He's also a front end developer. Uh, Evan, you want to say hello? Hello. Uh, welcome back. First off, I'm going to start real quick. <clears throat> you are probably noticing I sound uh, bad. And that <laughs> is because I'm using not my sweet, sweet Yeti microphone setup like Joe Dulcetone's bleep over there because I can't say his last name due to the doxing concerns. <laughs> um, but I am using my headphones. Uh, so I just had to give that mea culpa now. I am sorry in advance. That's that all, all right. I have. That's, sound, my, you, that's my whole intro. <laughs> you sound great. You sound great. Uh, let's see. So, so yeah. So today um, we are going to be doing a uh, an, an episode on visual regression, re- visual regression testing so that you can look forward to that. Before we get into that, uh, let's see. What did you do this week? Go. Oh. Man, I've been stuck looking at the same bug for days, Ugh. and I'm going insane. And here's the here's the worst part: I have something that works, but I don't. I cannot explain exactly why. Oh, it works. that's the worst. Uh, and this is a this is just a web of lies in React at this point. <laughs> it's like queries calling or hooks calling hooks calling hooks updating things there's uh there's like an enormous amount of profiling debugging console logging i've also been diffing outputs of console because we're talking about console logs of like hundreds of lines of json stringified maps of uh arrays and comparing those to figure out differences between things uh i have really stretched the limits of my mind on this and it's something it's so it's like such a simple thing but um this is the the danger of react and in in end stage reactal reactalism the capitalism <laughs> reactism end stage reactism is just a, it's like an irrevocable web of complexity sometimes and that's the tough part is you go to the profiler you're like why is this happening and then it's re-rendered like 452 times in dev because react dev double renders everything anyways and yep. then you're like, okay, it's updated because of this hook. Hook number 109. And you're like, oh, cool. And <laughs> then you go back to the components to see what is hook 109. And it's just like context. You go, oh, fantastic. Like, what did it update to and from? <laughs> uh, there's just <clears> – <throat> sometimes I miss Redux. I know that's what yeah. you say. Yeah, Redux it definitely has – you say what you want about Redux. It has some nice dev tools, nice – a nice way to trace down what's going on in the in your app. Yeah. Deterministic state updates. Yes. Yes. That's Anyways. Right. So that's where I am. I'm on the edge of being a madman. And, nice. Uh, yeah. How, how about you, Joe? What'd you do this week? Go. Uh, this week was good. We did uh, the what I one of the things I love to do every fall in New England, which is we went apple picking uh, with my five year old and his f- best friend. Uh, and our fa- our our family friends and uh, it was so fun. Um, I uh, I love apple picking. They reopened the uh, like the kids area with like they have a barn and like all this like stuff they can play on. A little train they can ride around. 
uh, it was just a it was a beautiful day. It was like it was a great way to spend uh, spend a Sunday. And we have a bunch of apples now. So we're going to make, um, you know, applesauce, maybe some apple pie, maybe some apple crumble. I had an apple today. Ooh. We got some Asian pears, all kinds of good stuff. Apple crumble is my number one favorite dessert. Wow. It's followed closely by key lime pie. They're basically neck and neck one and one, eh? Uh, <laughs> but man, I love an apple crumble. So if you end up making one, I'm just saying, don't forget about uh, don't forget about your co-host. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, smoosh it through the screen into your face. <laughs> yep. I live nearby, man. I can just go get it. <laughs> no, no, no. But that <laughs> takes all the fun out of it. Uh, That's true. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Should we jump into this? Uh, jump into this article. Let's do it. What are you reading? Okay, I am reading an article uh, called "Upgrading Frontend Dependencies with Confidence." This is uh, so. This is like a blog post on Docusaurus, 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 um, by Sebastian Lorber, who's a Docusaurus maintainer. This is sort of like an internal blog post about uh, you know how they're how they're doing upgrading frontend dependencies, which is sort of a misnomer. They're actually upgrading Docusaurus v two to v three. The dependencies they're upgrading are really big ones, like uh, MDX v2, React 18. So yes, it's a major for Docusaurus. A lot of it is going to be NPM dependencies. And they were looking at how to do that while maintaining uh, you know, the, this thing that we don't really look at a lot when we're doing tests, which is how things look, uh, particularly like the, you know, visual, uh, like the visual aspects of, of Docusaurus in general. If you don't know Docusaurus, Docusaurus is a docs generator. Uh, it's sort of like a Gatsby or 11D or whatever. You give a markdown, generates your doc websites. I actually love DocuSource. I love it too. I, I was going to say that actually. I like. I remember when we were uh, at one of my previous jobs, we were upgrading our doc site from our own internal doc set up to DocuSource. And I was pretty resistant. I was like, why are we, why are we spending all this effort to upgrade to, or to like move over to this new system? And when we did it, I was like, oh, this looks beautiful. And it's really easy to interact with. And this doesn't sound like a DocuSource advertisement. It's not, it's not but, uh, but I was really impressed with, with how it was to work with. It's got a bunch of plugins. I loved and stuff. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really oh, it's awesome. And it's not as heavyweight as Gatsby, but, um, Neither here nor there. So this is basically talking about how they set up a very particular workflow uh, where you basically build your you build your site in CI, and then they're taking screenshots uh, using a you know system test test runner and end test runner, and then uploading them to a third party. We'll talk about that and diffing them. So it's it's literally doing uh, screenshot diffing of before and afters of a branch against main. Uh, to make sure they don't have regressions in their pipeline. And that is, that's sort of it. We're going to talk about details of this thing. Uh, the main tools sort of in play are GitHub Actions for the CI. It's sort of irrelevant what CI you use, but that's the one that they're using. Screenshots, physical screenshots are being taken by Playwright, which is a sort of new iteration of, if you know Puppeteer, you know Playwright. It's, it's the same team. they moved on from Puppeteer and have now made Playwright, but it's similar to something like Cypress. Uh, it is you know, a browser-based testing framework. 
Uh, and they're uploading the screenshots to a third party tool called Argos. And that is what is doing the diffing. And that's probably, we'll talk about that quite a bit. Um, they're doing that comparison there and then returning those back as failures in you know, GitHub action uh, on, on a pull request. So let's get into some details, but that's the overhaul of the article or overall of the article. Yeah, yeah, that was a good, a good intro. Um, I will say visual regression testing sounds like such a simple thing to do. Like you just, in an automated way, you open up your site or your, your app, you take a screenshot of it and you compare and you like store that. And then you, every time you change your code, you take a new screenshot and you compare that against the old one. It sounds so simple, but there it's, it is, uh, it's really, there's a lot of hidden complexity, I think. And I, it's just to set it up and to get it set up and, and running in CI is, uh, a lot more work than I think a lot of people realize. And, and it's just, it's the reason why some of these third party services like Argos exist. And I think there's another one, there's another one called Percy that I've heard about, um, there's some tools years ago. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's some tools that like I know I I know Cypress has some built in uh or not built in. I think they're third party plugins, but like they will do some of this uh for you, but I don't know. All that is to say like visual regression testing is not as simple as it sounds. Um but it's also I don't know I think it can be really important because <clears throat> I see it as uh, actually like a really good use of one of these um uh, uh, one of these browser-based testing libraries. Like you, I, I've talked a lot in the past about um, about sort of like uh, you know a Jest environment, a Node Node environment where you're running Jest, maybe React testing library, and it's it's using the JS DOM, so it's using this like uh, Node-based fake DOM. And in my experience, you can test a lot of behavior with that. But this is where uh, browser-based uh, uh, browser-based testing framework like playwright really shines is where you actually need to see stuff you need to like take screenshots it's not a it's not a headless uh test you're actually looking at css and you're looking at how your how your um how your app looks and, and behaves uh in an actual browser so anyway that's that's what i see as like a good use case of of an actual browser environment yeah I did, um, i'm glad you touched on this i wanted to talk about visual regression testing as well as a concept before i get into the kind of what's and how's of the article, visual regression testing is a spectrum or the difficulty of it is a spectrum. And, you know, when you hear about people saying, oh, I spun up visual regression testing, so easy, whatever, you have to think about the type of app, the type of thing that you're uh, building. So if you're building a promotional website, a brochure website, so to speak, like we would say that back in the day, you know, it's got an about me, contact us page or whatever, uh, that doesn't have state. Visual regression testing will be easy for you. That's an input-output machine. Uh, there is no input or output. It's like the same every time, you know, unless you make a CSS change or whatever HTML change. Uh, so visual regression testing for something like that is actually pretty easy. Now, getting it built in your CI is sort of another story, but the act, the act of testing, diffing screenshots is easy for something like that because you don't have to worry about what comes in the next class of things, which is sort of data-driven applications. Uh, your, like, your average React app has data that goes into it. And now there's a spectrum of those as well. Like if you have a to-do app or something like that that generates in-app state, super easy again, probably fairly easy to put visual regression testing in place. 
Now you push that all the way to the edge of what's the hardest thing to test is something like an e-commerce application or SaaS application that is data intensive because it has a backend and data could be different every time. You've got dynamic routes, you've got dynamic data, you've got um, different pages render in different ways depending on that data, like personalization, stuff like that, like user-based personalization. This is the world in which visual regression testing gets fairly difficult because yes, the um, the sort of framework of the app, that's, that's probably the wrong word. I mean, the visual framework, like your navigation, your, uh, the big chunks are probably gonna be similar. But when it comes to computers, looking at two screenshots next to each other, they're not exactly bright. So they're going to diff them on pixels. And if like you're taking a picture of your homepage and you've got a hero slider, like on an e-commerce website that's got a different product on it, like a carousel, if just depending on when you take that screenshot, it's going to fail. And that is super frustrating, right? So that's a really lim- that's a really silly example, but but not so silly because I actually ran into that, like trying to do <laughs> this, you know? So think about visual regression testing. Don't say, oh, I need this in my app right now. Think about what do you have. And if you're on that far right of the spectrum of like, I've got super data-driven, data-intensive applications, then visual regression testing should be something you, you take with a pound of salt and say, what value is this going to give me versus the immense effort to stand it up and to maintain it? Uh, because what you'll often see is false negatives and sometimes false positives. Um, so I, I'd like, I just wanted to lay the groundwork because you opened the door to talk about that where visual regression testing really exists on a spectrum of difficulty to implement. And it's really based on the type of application. Yeah. That, 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 you know, what you said about how visual regression testing is very basic and it really is just comparing the pixels. That's like both a positive and a negative, right? Cause you have, that's what you want. Like when you're, you're not testing the logic, like that's not what visual regression testing is for. You're not testing necessarily. Like when I click this button, it should fire off a request to whatever you're like literally just saying does this look the same as it did yesterday um which is good because it's very simple to check the pixels it's like okay do these pixels match up or when i change when i change this css class did that actually have an unintended uh side effect over in this other class or something like that um but uh, like you say it's kind of a double-edged sword because if things are even slightly off and that can, so I, I had a little bit of experience with this when I was actually setting up some, uh, a Cypress visual regression testing suite for somebody who works in Squarespace. So I was like, this would be an interesting thing because you don't need a, it's not going to run on a, on a, uh, CI or anything like that. But, um, some, somebody was working in Squarespace and I was like, you know, you could just like set this up to run whenever you want to make an up- update to your site. You could run the visual regression testing before and after. And that was when I, that was my kind of first uh, experiment with visual regression testing. And, and I, I noticed right away that like, you know, if things uh, take different amounts of time to scroll, like a scroll, if it takes a different amount of time, one time versus another time, you have, you have to take that into account because the pixels are going to be completely different otherwise. And um, there's obviously some like variants. You can give it like a, um, oh, this can be, you know, within 10 pixels, uh, difference that that's fine you give it some sort of acceptable limits but um 
anyway, it's uh, it, it's it's both a positive and a negative. But it's interesting. I like how the article is called "Upgrading Front End Dependencies with Confidence" because that's uh, that's something that uh, I've run into in the past. Where like when you're running unit tests, you're you might be testing dependencies, but like probably not. But in some cases, you might. Um, but visual regression testing is a place that might catch more bugs with certain front end dependencies. You know, MDX is a good example, and they they mentioned that in the article. MDX is a tool for converting uh, Markdown and with with embedded uh, components. You can use HTML basically uh, in your in your MDX and uh, and React components. And so there's a visual element to MDX. It's not just markdown text it's, it's got a visual element too and so when you're upgrading from say v1 to v2 there is a chance that you're going to break something and uh not know about it so so yeah visual regression testing is is good for for testing when you upgrade dependencies like this especially major versions yeah um i'll get into this sort of first section um the i guess we talked about the overview so i'll get into the workflow implementation I'm going to keep this sort of high level. You can go to the article if you want to look at this, but if you're looking to do something similar to this in your CI step, like whether you're using a GitHub action or Travis or BuildKite or whatever, uh, you need sort of a take screenshot step. And in that it's, you'd need to, yeah, you got to install your dependencies like normal, blah, blah, blah. But you also need to, if you're using Playwright and Playwright is a, Playwright is great. I actually, I love Playwright. I've used Playwright quite a bit. Um, I think it's really competitive in this space. So you'd install Playwright with Chromium. Now that's something to say. Playwright is, Playwright can work across all browsers, but you don't want to install all browsers in your CI step because it's massive. So just like pick one. Um, like whatever, I guess use your user density. Most people are going to be on Chromium. Um, and then you need to build the website and then you need to take the screenshots. So that's like running a playwright test. And then their step is uploading the screenshots to Argos. There's, there's sort of another, you, you could do something else here. Argos, like we touched on, and I'll get into this now and Joe, we can talk more about it is Argos is a third party service. It's, um, visual testing for modern web apps. You just send them all your screenshots and they've got like a golden screenshot for that URL and they compare against it and send back a failure. Um, it's not free. It's <laughs> free for up to 5,000 screenshots, but I'm going to tell you what, that's going to go pretty quick. Um, mm -hmm. And then you're, <laughs> it immediately goes to $30 a month uh, for like 15,000 screenshots, which again, not that many if you're a team with CICD and you're shipping like 10 commits a day, taking 150 screenshots per commit, uh, you're going to bust that very quickly. You can do that math. Anyways, so that's what they do there. I want to stop real quick on Argos, which I don't condone the use of Argos, um, <laughs> but that's what they're using, which is they're uploading the screenshots to Argos, and then that's sending back the failure. Uh, and that's in the that's in the workflow step. So Argos would fail in the GitHub action step or whatever action step that you're you're um, you're running. So it's like yarn Argos upload your screenshots directory that you've taken, and then Argos will return a failure back, probably like I don't know, an exit code or something like that, and that fails the action. 
And then in GitHub, if you use GitHub Actions, you're going to see that workflow step fail. And then Argos, as part of that, will give you a little link to go look at your screenshots. It's nice and, you know, nice and compact and pretty. And then you can see what you want to do. I'll stop there for now. That's the kind of the overarching idea. You take your screenshots, install Playwright or whatever web driver that you have. You, you write a test to take the screenshots in Playwright, uh, you know, whether it's like Playwright or something. That's when you write the screenshots. How you get those screenshots we'll talk about, and then you upload them through the thing. I'm going to gloss over, we're going to gloss over some of the, the strict implementation detail. You can go to the article to see how they write their Playwright test to take the screenshots uh, if you want. But I, I'm kind of wanting to get to this part, which is the style sheet. So there's this little section in here where it says screenshots are not always deterministic. And I laughed, I laughed a lot when I read that because that's like, yeah, like, it's like, yes. Um, and they said, so like taking screenshots of a page twice can lead to subtle variations, blah, blah, blah. So what they suggest here is injecting a style sheet before your test runs. And you can do this in Playwright. Um, you inject a style sheet that hides uh, certain flaky elements. Like in this example, they're hiding photos, avatar photos, iframes, um, playground preview, mermaid container. Um, mermaid is, a, is like a markdown uh, language that converts to a graph. And they just hide them all with display nuns or visibility hidden. And I and thought like, this what's, was hilarious. What's left? What's left of their page? It's like <laughs> I thought this was funny. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I thought so too. I saw this like we were reading through it, and then and then you you got to the section before I did, and you were like, "Wait, they inject a style sheet that like turns all the stuff off." And I was like, "I was like, wait, I'm not there." And then I was like, "Wait, what?" Like it, uh, yeah. This was uh, this was a surprise. On the one hand, I can kind of see it. I can kind of see like, okay, that makes sense. If you have like, I don't know, say take for a simple example, you have a website that has a banner ad on it. Like you never know what's going to happen uh, with that banner ad. You you don't know, like it's not, it's not deter deterministic. And I think this is going to get into some of the stuff you're going to talk about a little bit uh, in a little bit with like date, you know, or it gets back to what you were saying earlier about the uh, data heavy application. It's like when the data changes, your, your visual, uh, uh, presentation is going to change too. And this is kind of their way around it. But I I don't know. To, I get it and I don't. Like, you know, like I said, I, I see how if you want to disable certain things that you don't have control over. I guess it's sort of like, it's sort of like mocking, actually, now that I think about it. Because if, if you're like, okay, I want to isolate this part of my test. So I'm going to mock maybe certain things that this depends on so that I'm not actually including those in, in the, the, the uh, subject under test. You're just sort of saying like, give me a deterministic, uh, thing here. When I, you know, when I go hit this interface, just give me an, a deterministic thing here. It's sort of like that. It's like putting little boxes around those parts of your, of your application. Um, but, uh, I don't know, I guess it, it just, it seemed just seems a little different. It seems a little weird. Well, okay, so they link out to this section in Argos called About Flaky Tests. And it says that there's several things that can cause flaky tests in visual regression testing, including uh, timing issues, like, I don't know, when the screenshot is taken, for example, like data doesn't load on time. That's very true. Uh, 
dependency on external factors is like network connectivity or the availability of certain resources, again, data. So all this goes back to how rough it is to do screenshot testing because, uh, again, in that far right side of the spectrum of like, I've got a data-driven application, a lot can change. So you've got, you know, different images could load, different user avatars could load based on the data. And unless you mock all the data and, and make your app sort of um, in a laboratory setting, which is hard to do, and people can argue that left or right, um, you know, you're going to end up with changes. So when, when I'm talking about style sheets that are hiding certain things, I start to think about doing the inverse. Uh, instead of taking a, a picture of the entire site and hiding pieces of it that are flaky, I'd rather take pictures of certain parts of the website that I care more about. I'd rather scope the test down rather than sort of erase parts of the site. And this is where yeah. I, I always ended up landing with visual regression testing is instead of taking a screenshot of an entire page, I would take screenshots of particular elements that you can, in Playwright, you can do this. You can scope a screenshot to a, you know, a CSS selector or a selector of any kind. So I'd take screenshots of, instead of the whole page, I'd take a screenshot of, I don't know, the navigation, uh, critical like hot path stuff that navigation works, that your, um, I don't know, that your homepage middle like content cards or something like that, that your, uh, whatever it is that's really important to you, just take pictures of that and compare it. And then once you get to that stage, you go even further and you start to wonder, why am I even doing this? Uh, why am I even like going to the whole page at all? I could probably just screenshot on my storybook tests of those of those components and eliminate the whole you know data aspect of it completely because storybook is you control the inputs and outputs and it's just the component gets visually rendered and you can scope it just down to that. So that's... That always to me, what this style sheet question or part of the article brought me to that eventual conclusion, which I found doing this myself or for companies was don't take the whole screenshot and eliminate things. Take screenshots that you care about and just care about those things. I was curious to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I have uh, I have mixed thoughts about that because uh, I think that is... I, I definitely see the advantage of that of scoping down your your tests, uh, whether they're visual visual tests or not. Like you know, it's kind of the same same idea as unit tests. You want to scope them down to the unit that you're testing. Um, but I, I also you know I, I think they're especially in visual regression testing, like where you have access to the whole browser, there is an advantage to being able to. It's like part to me the 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 big pro of running in a browser is that you have access to your entire site it's like um yeah i don't know but i, I can see it the other way too because i've seen the advantage of uh of cypress um uh, component tests because it's really nice when you're building a library that is a visual library say you have a library that's like a i don't know you maintain a, a header library that's used across a number of different applications it's really nice to be able to just render that header library in a browser environment with Cypress with uh, component testing, and um, and be and be able to isolate it. Because uh, otherwise, if you don't have that and you want to render it in a browser, you need to spin up a demo app, and you're like, okay, now I have all this other sort of machinery around 
trying to test this component visually where uh, some of these tools like Cypress Component Testing give you a nice sort of uh, a nice interface to that. When we start talking about uh, storybook and like running tests on your storybooks, I start getting a little bit, uh, that's where I start to get a little bit like weird. I don't know, maybe it's just some like hang up that I have, but uh, I definitely have seen that done in the past. I've seen uh, storybook and tests become tangled in a way that I, that does not strike me as uh, as like it feels like you're getting away from testing the actual behavior of the component and you're testing the actual behavior of the storybook in, instead. And I, I guess visual regression testing is a little bit different because if you're trying to test your component in isolation, storybook is probably like just as valid as uh, a, a Cypress component test. Um, it's, a, it's a different story to me if you are testing your components behavior in storybook because then your you're like wait is this actually you know if you change the way that your storybook setup is then your then your component might break uh, your test might break in a way that it wouldn't actually break in production and vice versa it might actually pass in storybook when it would break in uh in production it's putting this layer in between the component and the uh actual production environment that i think it, it does more harm than good in my opinion um yeah but that's fair that's fair and yeah. so yes and you can make counter arguments too for just this doing this in general and uh, in your app without storybook that it could pass or fail for reasons other than it like it should be passing or failing. Um, you could hit it, you know, you get to the application in a very specific state. Um, it could pass. I don't know. I guess it's not quite the same. Uh, but if you're using very specific, like for instance, if you're uh, using a certain set of data or certain URLs to test screenshot testing because you can't really do all of them. This has this is like in the article they're grabbing the sitemap and they're grabbing every single URL and screenshotting all you would like never do that. Um at least I can't imagine you'd ever do that. So yeah. you're going to be picking certain things. And if you particularly if you have a data driven app, you likely have dynamic um URLs because you have like I don't know user ID or whatever, like slash user slash, you know, whatever it is. And those are going to be unique. So you're going to have to pick whichever one you go to. And it's going to be some like cherry picked, you know, mock data, or it's like some testing directory or, you know, testing user or something like that. It's, it's unlikely you're just like picking some random person or picking some random whatever to go do your visual regression testing on it's going to be cherry picked by its nature that would i know i'm speaking sort of vaguely i don't want to get like in too detail but i think you know what i mean is like you're going to go to a particular part of the website uh a particular part of the app and like test a particular part of it so that could pass or fail because the data is cherry picked where if you go like any other data might break it um so i think all of this has grains of salt that's all i'm saying yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's a good a good argument. Um, I would also say I don't know the way that I think about browser testing and you know now that I'm thinking about it, visual regression testing falls into the same bucket. I think is like I think about to, when I, my mental model of testing is sort of like um, 
is sort of like a, 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 a core, you know, there's, it's like a sphere with like a core and then, or whatever, concentric circles, maybe. So the innermost circle is uh, the kind of the most valuable test. And we've kind of talked about this in the past where we talk about, uh, you know, we test your, your highest impact business logic first. And then the next ring out is less, you know, less valuable or not valuable, maybe like less high impact. And you just kind of keep going out. Uh, and what that mental model does for me is, is it sort of like, okay, my tests should be building on each other rather than completely independent. So like I get a certain amount of, uh, I get a certain amount of confidence from my unit tests and then I get a certain more amount of confidence from integration tests, but like I don't need to do integration tests for a lot of the stuff that I've already covered with unit tests. And then browser tests are a layer beyond that. It's like, I, I want to test, I want to use the browser test for things that I need the browser to test in. And I, I don't need to kind of cover the same ground as a lot of the tests that I've used uh, that I don't need a browser environment for. And then visual regression testing is kind of a, a, a I guess it falls into the same category as browser testing because um, I, I guess all this boils down to you don't want a million visual regression tests because I could see visual regression tests as for all the reasons that we've talked about, you know, because they are they they tend to need to be like pixel perfect. They, they sound like they can be really flaky. Um, anyway, what what I'm trying to I think what I'm trying to say is uh, like if you're using visual regression testing as your primary testing, you probably are going to run into a bunch of flaky tests because of what we've talked about where they're pretty basic. Like they do, they try and do pixel perfect, uh, test comparison. And so like the more tests you have, the more likely that something is going to go wrong there. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's totally fair. Um, I wanted to keep moving a little bit because we're running a bit long on this. Um, and that's after we, you know, we're talking about, uh, scoping down or scoping up, whatever is, this little section they have on making it cheap. And I'd love to talk about this because um, the path that they chose in this article, which is uh, they go, they grab um, every single path name found in the sitemap.xml with playwright. And they take a screenshot of every single one and send it to Argos. Uh, those two things, sitemap.xml, every, every path name and Argos are expensive. So Argos charges by the screenshot, the site map.xml is going to yield a lot of path names, particularly if you've got, I don't know, a lot of data and um, like unique URLs per data. So you could end up with thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages or something like that. Um, they picked like the most expensive option, the Cadillac option. And I would argue if you have a failure, I don't know who the hell is going to go through all of those screenshots to look at them and figure out what happened. So the making a cheap section is limiting the number of path names. Let's start there. And that's like, instead of going to the sitemap.xml, pick some specific path names, yeah. uh, like the ones you care about. Like you've got your home page, you've got one or two of, you've got like a user profile page. You've got your, if you're talking about e-commerce, your browse grid, you know, one of each of these things. Uh, because really what you're looking at is just to get some confidence that the main things that your users touch don't look fundamentally different in a bad way. 
it's not that every single page is exactly the same because I think that's unrealistic. Um, it's that the main things don't look very different. And if they do that, you know about it. So limiting the number of path names. And then the other part is don't use Argos. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> it says right here, external tools can be expensive. Um, first off, Argos seems expensive and there's not, they're not the only one. There's Percy. Uh, I think that's it really. But all they do is what you can do yourself. They just put a bunch of crap around it, which is Playwright itself offers visual comparison. Um, you can take a screenshot and it runs just like snapshots. Uh, you take the screenshot and then you can compare screenshots. So you go to a page and you'd expect the page to have a screenshot and you can actually decide the max difference in pixels, how many pixels you're willing to have different between the two images before you throw an error. And it, it, it will, it will pass or fail the test based on that. So you store this, you store a screenshot in GitHub, uh, like in source control as a golden screenshot of that page. And then you compare against it in playwright and that gets you almost the same thing. It doesn't get you all the trappings. It's, you know, you're going to have to build some extra stuff for like it failing your CICD or whatever, but it's, it's going to fail the test. That alone is enough. If you already have, like, if my tests fail, then I know, then this is going to just get you further. Um, and you could probably dump the failure screenshot somewhere and look at it. So yes, Argos and third-party services give you some of that nicety out of the box, but it's not required for like a minimum lovable product, you know, not even viable. Minimum lovable is like, you're going to get something that's, that's good for you which is different, you know, some basic screenshots on some of your pages, start there and then scroll up or, or, or scale up. I wouldn't start though with every URL in your sitemap and a third party no. service. Yeah. It's like starting in like, you know, nuclear war to start. It's so much. That's probably, I shouldn't use examples like that. It's just so much like it's, it, you know, it, yeah, that's, that's all. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Uh, no. Uh, yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. I'm not even going to try and come up with a metaphor because I think it's pretty clear what, what, what all of the various things that's like. Um, I don't have anything else on this article. Should we, uh, do you, did you have any final thoughts? The conclusion here is yes. just kind of like. I have, I have one last one. Okay. Cool. Yeah. There, uh, yeah. yeah. The one last thought is again, I'm making it cheap, is if you're going to run visual regression testing, you don't need to run visual regression testing on every pull request. Um, uh, you know, a lot of PRs have no visual changes whatsoever. Yeah. So one recommendation here, they, they kind of do this in a weird way, but one recommendation here is um, for your developers to have some sort of way to flag that it's a visual test or that it's going to have some sort of downstream visual effect. Uh, not that we can always guarantee that, but, for the most part, you could say, you know, something like conventional commits. Um, if it's, you know, a feature or something like that, you could label it in a way maybe to say it's visual. But if you're like changing your, I don't know, um, a type, like a, uh, a type policy or something like that in your cache in Apollo or something, you, you really probably don't want to run all of your whole suite of visual regression testing because it's going to slow down your pipeline. So that's like the last thing is as part of that first delivery, which is get some screenshots, diff them yourself if you can, um, 
and eliminate some of the flaky aspects on the screen like we talked about with CSS injection or pick certain elements to look at is only run them you know, when you need to. You can start wide and get narrower over time, but definitely don't run them on literally every port request. Yeah. And, and GitHub Actions, I think, makes this uh, super easy. Like you can, you can, yeah, like you said, you can use labels, you can use like a, a some kind of file matching glob, something like that. Um, but yeah, it's really easy to kind of like narrow down only running these tests when, when you need to. Cool. Well, uh, if that's it for the article, then we can jump right into uh, what, uh, what are you learning? What are you learning? All right. Uh, I will tell you one thing I'm learning, which is uh, how to run a podcast. Because I don't know if the listener uh, may or may not be able to tell when. when oh, they can tell. To this. We have had. They can tell. <laughs> <laughs> we have had many technical issues during this episode. This is honestly, this has been the hard, most difficult episode to get through, uh, and we have at least twice or three times said, uh, should we call it? Should we just, uh, should we just bail? And dear listener, I will have, you know, we are not going to bail on you for this, for this episode. No, so. uh, we will not bail. <laughs> Although my computer might die soon. So we need to go quickly. Okay. Um, Evan, so what do you learn? Yeah. Okay. I am learning something <laughs> called rag or retrieval augmented generation. Uh, this oh. is a, this is like a gen AI concept. So, um, I'll give you the, the TLDR. Uh, when you use like large language models, they have a bunch of training data. You ask them a question, they're going to give you something out of that training data. RAG is a framework, an AI framework for uh, sort of improving the quality of answers from large language model responses by grounding it in an external source of knowledge, for instance. So like you, you have a knowledge base for your product you want to use AI uh, to give human responses. So like a chatbot, an old chatbot would just go into your knowledge base and string search or whatever and just pass that back. But large language models are really good at interacting with humans in a, in a human way, but they don't know all the answers to your uh, specific knowledge base. And if they don't know, what they might do is just hallucinate some crap and come up with whatever. So you can, yes, give them the context of all of your um, like knowledge-based data or whatever. But for the most part, if you don't use something like retrieval augmented generation, it could still hallucinate an answer that is not in your knowledge base. They'll be like, oh yeah, just do blorp and then it's completely wrong. So RAG mm -hmm. is a way to sort of bind an LLM to a specific data set, uh, which I think is, is pretty interesting. So um, that's it, yeah. What Thanks. are you learning? I am learning, well, I'm kind of relearning uh, Svelte through uh, through Svelte Kit, so I, I used to write more Svelte than I do nowadays. But I uh, I wanted to take a look at Svelte Kit because I was I was interested in how it compares to like Next.js and the other frameworks that are out there. And so I spun up a new Svelte Kit app, and it's cool. I uh, it, again like wh whenever I jump back into the Svelte ecosystem, I'm like, oh yeah, this is like a just just a nice experience it's it's really uh it's just nice that's all i could say about it it's i was listening to syntax the other day because they were talking about um svelte they, they i think they did a whole episode on svelte some of the stuff they were saying i was kind of like well yeah this stuff is just like a given you know that you're going to be able to have uh um these like built-in um 
uh, uh, routing, you know, uh, what's called file-based routing and um, your server-side rendering, your, your data fetching on the server before it gets sent to the client and you these built-in API routes. And then I kind of stopped and I was like, well, like, this is wild that I'm sort of being like, ah, uh, yeah, you're just kind of rehashing. This is all old news. Because like two years ago, maybe that was like, there was one framework that was doing it and it was Next.js. And it's, it's, it's kind of neat that like now we have a bunch of these frameworks that, I mean, you know, they're pros and cons because now we have a bunch of these frameworks that you have to learn or whatever. <laughs> but it's kind of cool to me that it's become a little bit like standard that you get all of this uh, kind of, I guess, quality of life stuff. Um, of course, it comes with uh, trade off of complexity. But anyway, getting back into Svelte, uh, I, I built a little... Um, typing app for for Rowan so he he's like he wants to learn how to type a little bit so I like made this app and it's got a it's got like a, a bunch of words of things that he likes so it'd be like Sonic and Mario and he's into Pokemon right now so I got a bunch of Pokemon I got all the Ninja Turtles are in there um their names are really long so those are, those are harder for him but uh but yeah, so like the the word will pop up and then he will type it out. And then as soon as he finishes it, the picture pops up. So it's like a nice little reward. And um, yeah, it was fun. It's a, it's like nice. a fun, fun thing to build. And I'm enjoying SvelteKit. Um, yes, SvelteKit. Great. I loved <laughs> everything that you said. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you're learning it. And uh, can we just get to the good news, <laughs> Let's please? Do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Uh, uh, listeners, this has been a tough, tough it's good, question. It's a good thing nobody's paying us to make this podcast. I'll say that. That's true. We would be sweating. <laughs> All right. Before we lose the internet again, yep. Joe, what's your good news? My Go, good quick. news is, okay, so um, in the last three years, uh, Texas has increased its utility scale solar capacity fivefold, connecting more than 10 gigawatts. So uh, utility scale solar capacity is uh, solar power that is connected to the grid. So it's, it can, it, you know, it's, it goes into the community. It's not just like a um, uh, solar, it's not like just solar panels on your house or whatever. So um, they, uh, they've connected more than 10 um, gigawatts and uh, it's, uh, it says it's likely, so I was going to say it's fastest pace. It's likely the fastest pace of renewable energy capacity expansion anywhere in the world outside of China. Uh, I was going to say outside of China. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And China, I mean, that's another, that was, there was another piece of good news on here that I saw um, about uh, China that was, uh, let's see, where was it? Um, oh, China's coal consumption will plateau in 2024. And, uh, I mean, according to these these projections, uh, coal consumption plateau, and then it'll begin to decline after that. Um, so anyway, this uh, this graph is pretty pretty neat. There's like a n nice graph of Texas just sort of like shooting above all these other uh, all these other states in terms of their uh, utility scale solar neat capacity. Yep, that's good news. I've what got weird you? good news. Oh, good. Uh, the world's first drug to regrow teeth. Whoa. Ventures clinical trials. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I picked this one. I like it. But there's there is a drug that was able to regrow adult teeth in mice, uh, discovered by a scientist named Takahashi in Japan. Um, there's like some you can basically regrow teeth from buds, which is pretty cool. 
there's a lot of people who never wow. grow their teeth or wow. the teeth get knocked out and you can just regrow them. That's my good news. Nice. That is good news. <laughs> that is good news. <laughs> For the people who don't have teeth, that's pretty cool. My hope is that yep. next they come up with something that can regrow hair because yeah. uh, I <laughs> am non oh non-willing participant in my hair going away. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a not enough people doing research into into hair loss, hair regrowth technologies. That was that's was that sarcastic. was a joke. That was a yeah. joke. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Let's get out of here before this uh, before this connection drops again, before this podcast gets any worse. <laughs> okay. I apologize, dear listener, for the fact that this is going to be very weird. Uh, we Our internet dropped a million times. Also, my microphone quality was different the entire time. Oh, man. Um, we just, we're sorry. But stick with us because uh, hopefully our content is mediocre enough that you'll stick with us through <laughs> these problems. If not, and you're mad at us, go to runtimerundown.com slash suggestions and leave a little note and say you guys suck. Uh, if you like us, go any podcatcher of choice. Apple, Google, uh, Pocket Cast, there's a million of them. Go on there, give us five stars, and tell your friends. That's the most important thing. Uh, let them know about the podcast. We're doing our best. Uh, and my opinion, syntax is falling off, so there's an opening there. And we're just going to slide right in. <laughs> That's all I got, Joe. What do you got? Nice. Uh, I want to say thank you, dear listener, for, for tuning in again. I also am sorry about the quality of this show. We'll see how it turns out. And uh, I hope you have a great week. Uh, and I hope you have a great week too, Evan. And we will you see too, you Jeff. back here next week. See you next week.